Father, that Jesus Christ would be Lord of this church is our prayer and that the preaching of the word would only enable us to see Christ more clearly, his claims upon our life, his finished work at the cross, his ongoing work of sanctification. Father, that we would be salt and light in a needy world, that these Sunday morning gatherings would be more than just a ritual, just a weekly routine, but that they would be a time of refreshment, a time of renewal. Father, that they would be a time of revival in our hearts and our minds, that they would strengthen us for our walk throughout the rest of the week. And so, Father, enable us now as we receive the word to apply it to our lives and to live out the claims of Christ, to be your people, your ambassadors, your representatives in this wicked world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, the story is well known. It's Genesis chapter 6. If you want to turn there for just a minute, would you do that, please, on our way to 1 Timothy 4? I think it has to be one of the most remarkable stories in all of the Bible, of all of the remarkable stories we have, as well as one of the most remarkable men that we ever encounter in Scripture. It's Noah, and it's the universal flood of God condemning a wicked world. We find this story in Genesis chapter 6, and I just want to use Noah as an illustration here, as a model for us today as we what I call enter part two of this message, to pursue godliness. To be the kind of people that are living out their salvation in a wicked world with confidence and growing in spirituality. Now the Bible tells us that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the end times. And when you read what was happening here, you kind of can recognize that we sort of fit the bill of a world that is filled with wickedness all the time. Let's read it, in fact, uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that, listen to this, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's incredible, isn't it? Sometimes I think of this verse. You know when I think of this verse? Every once in a while, not very often, but once in a while, often I'm on the couch late at night with Janny Baby rubbing her feet while she falls asleep. Not very often do I take the clicker and turn on the TV at about 11.30 at night and Leno's coming on and I always think of this verse. That every thought is evil all the time continually. Those people can take even proper language and twist it and pervert it, can't they? It's just like everything they think about, everything they focus on, everything they do is just a continual wickedness all the time. An emphasis on sinful things and making light of these things. Well, in Noah's world, it was horrific. By the way, this isn't a kid's story, you know that? We kind of think of this as like a little kid's Sunday school. This is like beyond horrific what happens here. That every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it says, verse 6, that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. The idea here that God regretted it, I think that focuses on the word grief. It's anthropomorphism. It's an idea so that we can relate to God. I don't think that God ever wakes up one day. He never sleeps, but he doesn't ever get up one day and, and say, oh man, I really regret that I did that. 
oh, I really made a mistake. That's not God. The idea here is that as he sees a sin-cursed world populated in the first generations of mankind, and the entire world is populated, no doubt, equal to the population of today, I believe, millions, um, even billions of people, and sin has corrupted God's creation, and we always take lightly, don't we, the corruption of sin, and how everything is not the way it's supposed to be today. Sin has twisted it and turned it. And so as evil sweeps around the world like some kind of tsunami wave of sin, God is, as it were, a man looking at the earth, and and it's with a grief in his heart that a holy God says, this cannot stand, the wages of sin is death, he has to deal with it. And so he says, I regret this, I'm going to do something about it. So the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Again, an anthropomorphism, a, a putting an emotion of a man onto God that probably less than best, that's pretty dangerous to say about how scripture's written, um, probably is hard for us to grasp. God isn't like apologizing, but it grieves his heart. He has a sorrow for this. But, verse 8, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. He's going to explain his generations, verse 9, and it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Say that sentence with me. Noah walked with God. Now think about this. Here's how it's different. As wicked and corrupt as our whole world is, do you know that God has his people everywhere around this world? It will be fun to hear George Anderson come back from Nigeria and give testimony about all of God's people that he met. Both the Nigerian indigenous, the Nigerian nationals, who are God's church there, growing, living for Jesus, I'll bet you there's people from that team, from Samaritan's Purse, perhaps from Great Britain, from Australia. God has his people everywhere. But when Noah lived and corruptness swept over the earth, it was such a wicked place that Noah had no church. He had no fellowship with believers. He had no believing neighbors. He could go nowhere on the planet and all he could find and find righteousness. He could only find wickedness. And it says... He was a righteous man, and he walked with God. I'd like to suggest today that the reason Noah was a righteous man is because he walked with God, and that's exactly what we're talking about in our pursuit of godliness. And I hold Noah up as a model of a righteous man in the middle of a corrupt and wicked people group, but because of his relationship with God, he was able to live out the truth of God regardless of the pressure of the wickedness around him. That's what it means to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Will you turn now to the New Testament, to 1 Timothy 4, where we're in our series, and we're working our way through, and we just introduced this concept of godliness last week, and I thought that it was worthy of a deeper look And I wanted us to, as a church family, to just quiz ourselves today and to challenge ourselves that that we would ask ourselves, is godliness something I am pursuing? 
Am I in pursuit of godliness? I'm talking about a lifestyle of obedience to God's word. God says it. We bring ourselves under the authority of the word. But this is, as we said last time, based on the definition from from Jerry Bridges' practical little book, The Practice of Godliness, this godliness that we're talking about, we're defining as devotion to God, like Noah walked with God, devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to God. So here's how it is. The fact that I care so much about what God thinks, that I live with a a holy fear of an almighty righteous God, and I recognize that He loves me, and I love Him, and I recognize that He has, out of His kindness, given me His Son, Jesus Christ, to be my substitute on the cross. And I just care so much, and I believe in the authority of His Word, that I am devoted to Him. I have a relationship with Him as a friend of God. Because of that devotion, there springs a loyalty to obedience. There springs out of that devotion a desire to not meld in with the rest of the world and be what we say, you know, have Jesus, everything the world has in Jesus too. Not one of those kind of Christians, but the kind of Christian who I'm processing everything through the screen or the grid of what does God think about this? How do God's eyes see this? And I'm a godly man. That's how Noah lived. Noah had to have lived that way. Caring first and foremost about what God thought, so that the Bible, it strongly alludes to the idea that for 120 years, he was a preacher of righteousness. He wouldn't give up while he built that magnificent ship. And imagine what it felt like to be the neighborhood, throwing tomatoes at him and mocking him. And then one day, the pitter-patter of rain. But Noah was a righteous man and God preserved him. An incredible story it is. He's a model for us because if Noah can do it in the cesspool of wickedness in the world in which he lived, our devotion to God today can likewise be as confident, particularly with the fellowship of believers that we so much enjoy in our generation and in our world. Let's take a look at this godliness and let's try to understand it a little better. Let's read. We're going to pick up at verse 7. I want you to understand a couple of things about it. We're going to have six thoughts from here, from Timothy to Paul, from Paul to Timothy. Six points that Paul is going to make to Timothy about godliness from which we can learn. And then I want to go for our conclusion and just ask three questions from some insight that Peter will give in 2 Peter chapter 1 on godliness. 1 Peter 4, 7, have nothing to do, Paul says to Timothy, And hence to us, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. That's those old wives' tales we were talking about last week. This false teaching, this idea that by denying myself the pleasures of marriage, perhaps, is the illustration he uses in uh, verses ahead of time, verses 3 and 4. By forbidding to marry or by um, having some kind of control over my body so that I am in pain and not eating or eating certain foods, that somehow that will create a godliness in me that pleases God. Paul says to Timothy, that, is, that teaching's got to stop, and that is utter nonsense, and it's at the equivalent level of old wives' tales. 
It's not credible doctrine at all. In fact, I want you to know, have nothing to do with that. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, there's some value to controlling your body and exercising your body. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I want you to see here that as the Apostle Paul is instructing, I want to make clear that I'm, I'm not talking about a godliness that, and, and you have to understand there's somewhat of a tension in what we're talking about here. This godliness and the ability to say no to ungodliness as a result of our salvation and the grace of God that is at work in our lives, according to Titus 2 that we looked at last week, that comes from God. And yet, you will see in the passage, there is an expectation on us to fight for this kind of godliness. So I want to make clear of what I'm talking about. There is a righteousness that can only come from God. You can't earn it. That righteousness that saves us. You go to the cross and you look to Jesus and you recognize that in the presence of a holy God, you are a sinner. There's nothing you can do about your sin. You are lost in your sinfulness. But God, out of his love and his kindness, has sent Jesus Christ to be your substitute, to go to the cross, so that when you're convicted of that sin, and you can remember that day, can't you? And you realize how overwhelming your sin is, and you repent of your sin, and you receive the finished work of of Christ and what God has done on the cross, and you admit your sinfulness by his grace and undeserved favor through faith, that is just casting yourself on him by no merit of your own. You, it, it's not of works, and there's nothing you can do to make it happen. It's just a faith act. I just, I'm just going to believe it. I'm jumping on Jesus here. I'm jumping on the finished work of Christ here, what he's done, and he's going to hold me up like a foundation. That his righteousness can be mine through faith. I admit my sinfulness and it's as though I give my sin to him. He pays the penalty for it on the cross, which he already did. It's a completed work. And then by faith, I receive his righteousness. I'm born again. I'm a child of God. And that righteousness, a a godliness is mine. It's settled. It's once for all good. But you'll see in our passage here that Paul exhorts Timothy that he's to work for a godliness. So I want to make absolutely clear that we're not working for the kind of godliness that gets us up into heaven. We're we're talking about a godliness that we're striving for because we are going to heaven. You understand the difference? That's essentially at the root of the difference between religion and true biblical Christianity. Religion is me trying to jump through somebody's hoop, some guy who lived a long time ago and wrote things down, or some council that met around a big stone table and decided that you had better do this and you had better do that and you had better do this every week and you had better say so many prayers and then God will be pleased with you. Religion is me trying to get to God. Biblical Christianity is is God providing for me in my helplessness. He comes to me through Christ. And by faith, I just accept it. As a result of that, then, I want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus because this salvation, this grace, this same grace that brings salvation, teaches us, Paul said to Titus in chapter 2, 
This same grace that brings that salvation and opens our eyes to truth also opens our eyes to the reality of sin and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasure and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And it is doable. It is doable. So what I'm talking about this morning and what I think Paul is talking to Timothy about here isn't I'm saved, I prayed a prayer in vacation Bible school, I got my ticket to heaven and I don't have to worry about a thing. And I can go off to college and live any way I want because I prayed to receive Christ, I'm saved. Or I can act any way I want on some business trip when I'm away with my buddies or a hunting trip with my buddies. I don't care, it's all covered under the blood. No, because I'm saved, I'm convicted about the sin around me, the sin in my life, and I love righteousness and I hate sin. And this all springs now, this godliness... Remember our definition, it's a devotion to God that I'm, in, I'm walking with God and I care so much about his mind and his thoughts and my relationship with him out of my devotion to God results a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. Okay? So here's some lessons about godliness that Paul gives Timothy. The first thing I want you to see, and I'm not spouting heresy, but it's an interesting way to put it maybe, First of all, I want you to see that godliness is optional. It is optional. It's an imperative option. But uh, look what he says. Verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, You should have nothing to do with all that irreverent, irrelevant nonsense. And then he uses, look at the next word. He says, but rather do this. You see the option there? You see, one of the things you have to understand is that you've got to decide, you've got to make a decision. I want to pursue a godly life. One of my concerns is that so many of us never think that through. We're born again, we kind of go through our little rituals, and we like singing hymns and stuff pretty much, and, but we've, we never process and think about at a deeper level what it means to have such a devotion to God I'm not saying so that you go off and join the priesthood or something. That's ridiculous. But so that every day, every part of my life, everything I do is processed through the grid of this devotional relationship with God that I am so intimate in my walk with God that I think in such a way that I care about His thoughts about my behavior today. That's optional. A lot of people never give it any thought. It's an imperative optional. You need to do this. You really don't have a choice. You need to to do that. God always calls his people to be separate from the world. I mean, from the beginning. Think about Adam and Eve were given directions, weren't they? You can do this, but you can't do this. And then Moses and the children of Israel. You can do this, but you can't do this. In fact, let me chisel it in stone and give you a list of things. You can do this, but never do this. And never be like the pagans over there. And every time God's people turn and live like the pagans over there, they found themselves under judgment, didn't they? It goes on all through the Bible and all in the New Testament. Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You're supposed to be distinct and different from the world around you and shine like a light on a hill. The Apostle Paul said, That we're aliens and strangers. Peter talked like that as well. The Apostle Paul said, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're not supposed to be like everyone else. 
And that's where godliness comes in. Our salvation, as we live it out, and it works its way out through us, this life of devotion. But Paul tells Timothy, don't do this. Rather, train yourself to be godly. I see an option there. I see a decision that needs to be made. The second thing I want you to see is using Paul's illustration of the gym here, this idea of train yourself to godliness. The word training there is, as we said last week, from a Greek word in which we get our English word, gymnasium. And in the Greek, it's like a gymnazo kind of thing. Gym, you can kind of, kind of hear it a little bit, even though Koine Greek is a dead language. Nobody knows exactly how to sound it out. And so you, you have this word that in the Greek is a gymnasium, a workout place, an exercise and fitness area where you put away everything else. You strip down to the basics and you work out and you focus on strengthening yourself. Train yourself. I want you to see that as Paul uses this as an, as an illustration, training yourself for godliness then means to me, number two, that it's a gradual process. It's gradual. Here's what I mean by that. I think there's people here, if we took time, took the microphone and passed it around, that they would be able to tell their story about walking with God. And I'll bet you, if you've been walking with the Lord for like 30 years and you've been, you know, you've been growing in grace and the Word of God has just become richer and richer to you, I'll bet you you can look back at times in your Christian life that you embarrassed yourself. I'll bet you can look back on your Christian life and find times when you are just... You disgraced yourself. And that your behavior is changing, and that little by little, what is happening? I'm conforming to the image of Christ. That's what's supposed to happen, but it doesn't happen overnight, does it? And so one of the things you need to know is that this is a gradual process, this work of sanctification, this devotion to God, which results in a lifestyle that is pleasing to God, is an ongoing thing, and you will never get to like next Thursday afternoon at 3 o'clock where I've really got this thing down. It doesn't work that way. Next Thursday at 3 o'clock, you're still going to have to be growing in godliness. Alonzo Puller got me going to the gym again a few years ago when uh, Anytime Fitness was open over here at the plaza. And I really hated to see the place closed down. I understand that they had to close down because no one was ever in there except the two of us. But I really liked it because we had our own gym for about six months. And, you know, I went and worked out and I thought, good, I'm done. Did I think that? When I first went, I couldn't do what I can do now. I know it doesn't look like I work out, but I can do way more than I could just three years ago. On the bench and on the dip rack and on the sit-ups and all that. What do you do? You gradually work your way. You take on more. There is a process, a mindset of a gradual growth. This is an optional thing. I've got to make a decision. It is gradual. It is progressive. I'm going to keep at it. It is personal. We pointed that out last week. He noticed that he says, train yourself. This is why I don't think he's talking strictly about this righteousness that comes from God in a salvation mode, but it is a righteousness that God works in us as we work on our salvation with God, a team effort. Train yourself, Timothy. It's personal. Let me tell you something. No one can make you godly. No one can make you spiritual. No one can make you care about holy things. Some of you have experienced this. I heard a story just this week. Broke my heart. There's 
I did everything I knew to do with this kid. You held his hand. You taught him everything he knows. You might have even kept him out of home for school. You, you made sure he wasn't hanging out with pagan kids. You did everything. And then off to college he goes and he turns into a pagan. And you're like, what's that all about? Well, he wasn't godly in his heart. His devotion to God wasn't such that he lived out a passionate, obedient life. You cannot make someone else godly. Our kids are not robots. Our spouses are not robots. You can't program them. They have to come to a place where they make a personal, active, proactive, involved decision to begin to walk with God in such a way that it turns into the fruit of godliness. It's optional, you better decide. It's gradual, it's a process. Train this training, this gymnazo, this continual working out. You're never done with it. It's personal, you have to decide for yourself. Rather do this, train yourself for godliness. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value... There is some value to it. Godliness is of value in every way. So there is a contrast now between the physical and the spiritual. Bodily exercise is beneficial to some level, but godliness. There's the contrast. But godliness, that's not the physical aspect of it. And so number four, we need to, think, we need to realize it's internal. It's internal. This springs from a heart relationship with God. It's the spiritual part of my beating. It's my soul and my spirit as I am in relationship with God through his word and I'm growing and I care about the things God cares about. It's internal. External is physical exercise. It benefits a little bit. But this godliness is spiritual and it benefits both this life, look what he says, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so it is practical. It's practical. How is godliness practical? It's practical for this life. It is useful. Let's just stop and brainstorm for a minute. If we had our marker board up here, we could class. Give me some suggestions. How is godliness practical? How is godliness practical for this life? Let's think about this life. How about this? Do godly people generally love their spouses? Even when it's difficult? That's practical, isn't it? Do godly people generally kick their kids and kick their cats? Generally not. Say generally not, Pastor Van. (laughs) Because self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? And a godly person is a Spirit-controlled person. Well, that's practical, isn't it? Do godly people waste their money on pornography and have their internet hooked up to porn sites? If you've ever had a spouse that did that, you would really like a godly spouse, wouldn't you? Do godly people waste all their income on drinking and gambling or something and waste their money or, or lie to their spouse and go somewhere else and spend their money and then they don't have bills to pay? That's pretty practical, isn't it? Do godly people and godly parents ever have to go to their children and say, I'm leaving you all? Well, that's pretty practical if you've ever had your dad or your mom leave you. You'd like to have a godly parent who's determined not to leave you. I'd call that pretty practical in the here and now, wouldn't you? Now, how about when you go to work and, and you've got people at work that are gossiping about you and, 
So you don't go get your AK-47 and shoot them down like it's kind of in mode nowadays when you don't like what goes on at work. I'd rather work with godly people than ungodly people. I'm going to assume that every time anybody shot up their work or kicked chairs or punched a boss, it was an ungodly person. Or if they stole from you. Or if they lied about you and got you a bad report on your record. That that's all springing from godlessness, not godliness. I think that's pretty practical, don't you? And that's the kind of people I would like to be around, and that's the kind of person I would like to be. He also says then that it is beneficial for the life to come. So there we have some suggestions from Paul to Timothy to us that this godliness is optional, so it's a decision. It's gradual. Don't ever give up on it. It's personal. You need to determine what kind of person you're going to be, and you can never make somebody else be godly. You can influence, and you can, you can create an environment, but sinfulness is septic. It's not environmental. It's personal. It's internal. It's practical. And it has eternal ramifications, and we'll see this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Will you turn there with me, please? And let's conclude by just asking ourselves three questions from Peter's take on godliness. Let's look at what Peter says about godliness in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. And I want you to see what he says. Let me just read this passage. It's a few verses, about eight verses, 3 through 11. Peter says when he's talking about godliness, his, that's God, 2 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has granted us, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. There's Noah, isn't it? Noah escaped the corruption of his world through the promises of God and through his relationship and walk with God. For this very reason, do this. Here's a process now. Make every effort to supplement your faith, that would be your salvation, your saving faith, with virtue, goodness. And with this goodness, add knowledge. Keep growing in your knowledge of the word. And with knowledge will come self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, steadiness, reliability. Don't be up and down. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness out of a devoted life to God. I am living out a practical life of obedience. And with godliness comes brotherly affection. I care about people other than myself. I'm self. I'm maturing. I'm not a selfish brat Christian anymore. I'm a loving part of the body of Christ. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, you see, this is not a point of salvation thing. This is a process of sanctification. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's practical. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You forgot that you used to be a sinner, you got saved, and now your life's supposed to change. You need to remember that, Peter says. Therefore, brothers, verse 10... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 
your salvation. For if you practice these qualities, that's living them out daily, you will never fall. God will keep working in you. You keep growing in grace. For in this way, they will be, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that verse 11? For in this way, what? This increase in godliness, then ultimately there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't think what he's saying there, that if you keep doing all this stuff, then you will get to heaven eventually. That would be like setting up a works. He's talking about a progress. I think the NIV expresses it a little bit more clearly. And you can see there that what happens is, is that there will be a joyful entrance into heaven. I picture it kind of like this. You've been fighting the good fight, huh? So you're saved. You're one of them. It means you don't do a lot of things that this world provides. It means that there are times when you have to remind yourself that this is a light and momentary affliction. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That I am going to cross Jordan one of these days and then I will be home. I long for a heavenly city whose builder and creator is God. This is not my home. I don't fit in here. And the more I grow in godliness, the less I fit into this world. And you get to go to heaven one day. Do you really believe that? It'll change your life if you really believe you're going to heaven, by the way. We Christians are funny. We get used to some of this stuff to where it almost becomes meaningless. You're going to heaven and you're walking down the hall to get to see Jesus. That's not how it is, but just imagine. I should write a song about only imagine. (laughs) And Jesus sees you coming. And you get to look him in the eye and you don't go, oh man, I really don't want this moment to happen. I know that I'm robed in the righteousness of Christ, but he knows how I've been living. No, what you want, and I don't think it'll be quite like this, but I just imagine, and you walk down the hall and there's Jesus and he looks at you and you look at him and he goes, yes, you made it. Not, not like you made it into heaven by the skin of your teeth. That was a foundational reality in the righteousness of Christ when he sees you and he looks you up in the judicial file of heaven. There's no unrighteousness anywhere. But it's that you were godly and you exercised self-denial and you put away the deeds of the flesh and you separated yourself from the godlessness of the world and you didn't try to have Jesus and everything the world has too. And you suffered for the namesake of Christ. And you walked in obedience and you loved your wife and you loved your kids and you paid your bills. And you did it, why? Out of devotion to God and a righteous spirit, not by any works that you're trying to save. And you get to look at Jesus and there will be a joy-filled welcome to heaven. A well done. Yes. I think that moment should carry some weight in our thinking. What do you think? tempted to tell a story about a coach right now, but that'll hold. So Peter challenges us here, and we ask three questions. Look what he says in verse 3. Real quick, I'll just click these off in conclusion. I just want you to ask yourself three questions as we conclude now. His divine power will finish 1 Timothy 4 later. 
His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Listen, he called us to his glory and excellence. That's our salvation. His divine power has given us everything we need to live out our salvation. That's his point. Question number one, what is your salvation attitude? What is your salvation attitude? Here's what I mean by this. If you have the attitude that my salvation is my license to sin, that I'm saved, going to heaven, so I can be like everybody else and it doesn't matter, that's an attitude about your salvation that is wrong. And your salvation attitude needs to be, I'm saved, and because I'm saved, everything I need exists through Christ who lives in me, To live a righteous life in Christ. There it is. My salvation attitude is the grace of God that has brought this salvation enables me to say no to that and yes to this. That's what my salvation attitude needs to be. That I now possess a power I never had before. The second question I want you to ask is what Peter says next. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. You should underline that. These are precious and very great promises. That's his word to us. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Listen, God's word, these divine promises are given to us so that we can live a righteous life. Second question, what is your scripture Aptitude. What is your scripture aptitude? Part of the reason some of us have a hard time living a godly life or caring about thinking the way God thinks is because we really don't care about the word of God. I want to tell you something that's a little bit scary. If you don't care about the word of God, you need to ask yourself if you're a child of God. The word of God is to be our meat and our bread and butter. It is to be our sustenance. I, of all people, recognize that it's a hard book in a lot of places. There's not many pictures in very many editions. It's small print. But does the preaching and teaching and and does, when you read your daily bread and you look up your verse and you have your practical application, does that stir your heart? Do you have your little verse that you look at and you think, that's right. I got really convicted that I haven't been memorizing God's word. I would think that if you love God's word and you want God's word and these precious promises to change your life, you ought to be embedding them in your mind. So I resurrected my verse cards and and I've been trying to work on my verses. Simple ones that I used to know really well that I mess up now. I memorized in the King James all my life growing up. Then I'm ministry in the NIV. Now I'm in the ESV. I can't say a single verse straight. It's terrible. So I'm just memorizing them. Again, Galatians 6, 9 and And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I just need to have that verse in my mind. Just, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2. I know that verse, but I can't quote it. What's your scriptural, what's your scripture aptitude? Are you getting it in your head? Are you getting it in your heart? Are you learning more every month, every year? Do you turn off your country western station once in a while to listen to David Jeremiah or James McDonald on the way home from work? Oh, that stuff's boring. These guys are great preachers. It's the word of God. At least do it once a week. 
Finally, he goes on to say, in end of verse 4, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So for this reason, make every effort then to build on your faith with all these things. The third question is, what is your sin altitude? I'll explain that in a minute. Question number one, what is your salvation attitude? Are you saved so that you can sin, or are you saved so that you know you have the power not to sin? Secondly, what's your scripture aptitude? What's your knowledge of scripture? What's your growing relationship with scripture so that you can grow in godliness? And thirdly, it, it moves us, the word of God does, from the corruption of the world and helps us overcome sinful desire. Third question, what's your sin altitude? I used to take flying lessons. I never got my pilot's license. Um, I think the Lord probably gave me a chance to do it so he knew I could live without it, so I'd stay in ministry. And Because um, I love to fly planes and be a part of that world. And I was taking private, pilot, private flying lessons at Beckley Airport in Beckley, West Virginia, and flying with my uncle in Alaska. You know, it didn't take long for me to realize that there's a gauge on the dashboard of an airplane that they all have that's called an altimeter. An altimeter. It tells you your altitude. How close you are to the mountains. How close you are to the ground. So you know where you're at and how high you are above terra firma. So you don't fly into the side of a mountain. A lot of us, I think, when we're saved and we're not focused on godliness, and we're not pursuing godliness, we tend to fly as low to the sin mountains as we can. We try to fly right down in there in Worldly Valley, don't we? We try to just get right as close. I don't do what those people do over there, but right here's my line, buddy. You don't really want Jesus to come right now while you're on this line. What's your sin altitude? How close are you flying to the destructive forces of sinfulness? Peter says, godliness removes you from that sinful desire. That it it gives you victory over sin. Listen, I think this is something we need to take seriously. I don't know how it needs applied to your life. I know that then the next conversation we probably need to have is about doubtful things. Okay, Pastor Van, then what music should I listen to? Can I do this? Can I drink wine? Can I dance? Can I? What's worldly? What's not worldly? What's, I don't know. Let the Spirit of God teach you some of that stuff. I can tell you what my convictions are and the things that are in the Bible I'll talk about. I know you better not be sleeping with your girlfriend. I know you better not be sleeping with your neighbor's wife. I know you better not be stealing with a bank card at work. I know that the Word of God ought to be just transforming your life. My point is that we need to be a church filled with people who are pursuing godliness. Our relationship and our devotion to God is such that it shows in our walk on a daily basis. Amen? Amen. Father, we turn to you for our strength. I readily admit that we are weak people and that the world has so many attractions And there's so many things in our entertainment world and and in our work world and in in the areas of of just uh, finances and, and just all kinds of things in our leisure that can start out being such great gifts from you and that can lead us down paths that end up being worldly and then ultimately sinful. 
So show us, Lord, how to live a devoted life. Show us how to walk in godliness. Show us how to be like Noah, who lived a righteous life in a hugely wicked world. That's our prayer today, Father. I pray for anyone here who may be stuck in a rut of sin and needs victory over something that really has a hold on them. Would you really help them to let go of it this week? recognizing that your divine power has given them everything they need to have victory in that area. Lord, help us to to revel in our salvation and to let our salvation launch us into godly living. Help us to stand firm in this wicked world. Take our lives, Lord, and let them be wholly devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen.